scripture that can be found on the inside of the bulletin. We are uh, continuing to go through the book of Luke, and uh, we uh, experienced Jesus' baptism last week. And now we go into a most interesting text. I know many of you meditate on it day and night uh, to glean the, what, it, what exactly it's about. So I'm going to read it and I want you to try not to fall asleep as I read it and listen in my uh, perfect Hebrew diction here. This is Luke 3, 23 through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Math, the son of Matathias, the son of Shaman, the son of Joseph, the son of, son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi. <gasps> The son of Cosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mathat, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nasham. <sighs> The son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Eru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphasad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Malachiel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, all right, let me catch my breath. Now, some of you may be going, oh, shoot, this is the sermon I came for? Man, this thing could be a yawner. But, you know, the Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if the Holy Spirit put the Scripture uh, into uh, the book of Luke, there's a reason it's there. And so it's my job as your fearful pastor to help unpack it for you. We need to talk a little bit about genealogy. We all, you know, it's one of the first questions we ask, you know, who, not really, but in the South in particular, who's your people? Who's your kin? Where do you come from? You know, I'm, you've probably figured out that I'm Hispanic with a name like Carlos Rodriguez. And in the Hispanic culture, genealogy is very important. Some of you don't know my full name, which is much longer than Carlos Rodriguez. It's actually Carlos Don Juan Esteban Rogelio Sanchez Jesus Luis de Rabon Butros Butros Guys Guillermo Villas Juan Carlos de Lopez de Salamanca is my full name actually. So it's very hard to get on a business card so I just kind of you know put it aside. But if you want my short surname in the Hispanic culture often you put the name of uh, your father's uh, last name and your mother's last name. Well my mother's maiden name was Rodriguez. So I'm actually Carlos Rodriguez Rodriguez, uh, if you want to call me by my shorter surname. You know, where you come from is important. We carry the lives of our forebearers in us, not only in our appearance, but in our cultural traditions, even in our predispositions. It's interesting seeing my children grow up and seeing my uh, uncles and aunts and everyone and seeing the personality reflected in its own special way. The apple, as they say, doesn't fall too far from the tree. Well, this passage is about where you came from. 
And it shows us that there are two lines. There's only two lines that you can come from. It's only two lines of who are your people. And one line leads to failure, but the other line leads to victory. One line leads to death, but the other leads to life. One leads to hell, and the other leads to heaven. See, here's the truth, my friends. We didn't choose who we came from, but we can choose where we are going. People say that you can't rewrite the past. That's actually not true. In the gospel, you can rewrite your past in order to reroute your future. And so this passage is all about how to rewrite your past. You can't choose where we came from. But by rewriting our past, we can choose where we're going. This passage is intended to communicate to us three things. Number one, we have a past and we have to own it. Own your past. Number two, God has a plan to redeem our past. And so we must choose God's plan. We must own our past, but we must choose God's plan. And finally, if God has given us a plan, we must walk on God's path. So own your past, choose God's plan, and walk on God's path. Well, let's take a look at this. What do I mean by owning your past? You know, this passage is very interesting. Uh, we just talked about Jesus' baptism. And uh, next week we're going to be talking about Jesus heading out into the wilderness. So in between these two things, Luke decides to sandwich this genealogy. And we ask the question, why? I mean, what a great story. The baptism, now it's time to go into the, wood, uh, into the wilderness and do battle. But instead, there, there, there's this genealogy. Now, before I get into this genealogy, I want to address the issues of discrepancies. Because some of you who have read the Bible before turn to Matthew, where uh, Matthew puts the genealogy of Jesus first. And there are discrepancies between the two. Now, it's very interesting that nowhere in early Christian history do you see anyone having a problem with that. And I want to explain to you why. You know, it's just like your own family line. There's some things in there that you don't quite understand, and it depends on what perspective that you're looking from. For instance, if you look at the beginning of Luke, we see that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. But in Matthew it says that Jacob was the father of Joseph and Jesus was the son of Joseph. So isn't that a discrepancy right there? Not necessarily. In Hebrew tradition and in the old law, there was something called Levirate marriage. In other words, if you were married to someone, a husband to a wife, and the husband died, the brother could take that woman as his wife and to have children in the name of the father, so that his line would not be wiped out from the earth. And so you could either say, who was he the son of? Well, he was either the son of Levi, or he was the son of, uh, of uh, Jake, uh, Jacob. Which one is it? That's what most uh, theologians believe happened. Well, there are other discrepancies as well. From Abraham to David, it's pretty much spot on between, but from David all the way down, there's some differences. But we need to understand what each author is trying to communicate. The book of Matthew was written for the Jews. And this, uh, this passage is written to show that Jesus is the true descendant of David. And so most likely, the descendancy that we're seeing here deals with those who would be uh, legitimate successors to the throne of David. 
if the monarchy of David continued. In other words, Jesus, there's two ways that this line can go that converge at a later date. And so Matthew is showing the royal lineage. Luke is not concerned with that at all. He's showing a genealogical lineage most likely. Some people have said also with Luke, he goes all the way back to God. But surely there are more generations than that. Deed after, uh, so something's going on here. Well, in both Matthew and Luke, they're trying to prove a point. Do you know, in Luke, there are actually 77 descendants listed in the book of Luke. Okay, we understand this 77 fullness. We understand it about forgiveness of sin, don't we? It's a specific number. Where in Matthew, there's three successive sequences of 14 generations. You need to understand that what they're trying to do is to communicate something. One, easier to remember, but two, they're writing in such a way to communicate a message. Jesus starts at the end of the 77. God starts at the beginning. And so these discrepancies, the point I want you to make is not to get lost for the trees, but to look at the forest. The real point that is trying to be made in the book of Luke is that we are all the same. We're all from the same tree. It all goes all the way back, humanity, to Adam, the son of God. You know, science proves this, by the way. I don't know if you've learned about this. It continues to grow, but in uh, the journal Science, in fact, this was in 1995, they did some study on the Y chromosome. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a woman's, uh, you know, their chromosomes are identical except in the sex genes. A woman is an XX, while a man is an XY. Well, a woman inherits the X chromosome, one from her mother, one from her father. But the mother has no Y chromosome to give the son. And so the Y chromosome comes directly from the father. And so through the Y chromosome, we can actually track the patrilineal lineage from beginning to end. And so what they did in this test, they took 38 men from different ethnic groups and analyzed their chromosomal makeup. And to their surprise, the researchers found no variation at all. Their conclusion was that the human race must have experienced a genetic bottleneck sometime in the past. Further research was done and it was determined that every man alive today actually descended from a man who scientists now refer to as Y-chromosomal Adam. They actually call him chromosomal Adam in science. Now, people, evolutionists, would say, well, this is simply the line that survived. There were other lines, but they didn't survive. That certainly seems to line up a lot with what Luke is saying. We're all descendants of one person. We're all genetically of the same family. And so we see that Adam, who is our forebearer, was made and was called the Son of God. Not in the sense that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God, but rather he was made in the image of God. In fact, if you read some of these genealogies, it always says that somebody fathered someone in their own image and likeness. See, Adam was made in the likeness of God, in his own image and likeness. <clears throat> and God even went further. When he created man, he said that man was very good. Now think about that. He created all of creation and he said it was good. I don't know if you've had a chance to go out and explore this beautiful world, but I have. I've gotten to see the Alps numerous times. I've gotten to go scuba diving in beautiful places. 
gotten to be out in the country and to look up and to see the magnificence of all the stars in the sky. To feel the smallness. And God made all of those things, but none of them He made in His image. All of them He called good, but none of them He called very good. See, the truth of the matter is, we were designed to reflect the image of God, not only His beauty and splendor, but His character, His righteousness, His holiness, His goodness. We were made in His likeness to be God-like. I think we have a sense of this, by the way. You ever notice how many movies deal with uh, there's someone and there's something great about them? A hidden power, a something. They're, they have something. We long for greatness. We have a sense that it's in us and yet somehow it's missing. See, if we were made in the image of God to reflect this beauty and splendor and we compare humanity now, what do we see? Look at this very line that we're talking about of these great people following Adam. Terah, the father of Adam, was an idolater. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater and a thief. Judah traded slaves and consorted with prostitutes. David was a murderer and an adulterer. And it goes on and on and on. The list of crimes are almost endless. See, the truth of the matter is, we look at ourselves and we look at them and we think, hey, we're doing pretty good. But the question is, what standard do we compare ourselves to? I brought a ruler. This is a foot-long ruler, 12 inches. Okay, many of you have this. This is what's called a standard. And if we want to know how long a foot is, we have a standard to measure it against. If I brought something and I said this was a foot and then I compared it to this, I realized, no way, it doesn't meet the standard. Well, if we're made in the image of God, then what is our standard? Who do we compare ourselves to? Do we show the holiness of God? His righteousness, His love, His greatness, His splendor, His beauty? Or are we a marred, twisted creation? Like these people in this genealogical line. See, my friend, we've, we come from this line. We're all failures. The apple doesn't far, fall too far from the tree. If we measure our standard against God, we have to be honest. We're miserable failures. Now, some of us, we say, I can throw off my destiny. In fact, that's why I'm here. I need more religion. I need to be a better person. I can be good. I can change. I can be the person that God expects. But all have come before and all have failed. All have gone into the desert to be tempted and none have gone back. You know, every single one in this line, every single one of them except for one share the same destiny. They're all dead. All have failed. Some of us, we say, I don't like that standard. I'm going to create my own standard. Good enough. I'm going to compare myself to him and him. And guess what? I make the standard. Are we not proving that we're the very children of our forebearers and ancestors? We have to come to grips with what we should be and who we are. I don't know if you've done much study on the Third Reich, but they had a concept they called the Ubermesh, the overman. Hitler was convinced that 
the problem was with humanity was that there were these lesser races and they needed to be rooted out. And so he sought to create a genetically pure race, the Ubermensch. And he implemented selective human breeding and eugenics. Aryans could not marry other races. He created a standard, blonde hair and blue eyes, with the strongest physiques and the tallest requirements. In fact, Hitler regarded individuals who were over six feet tall and met these characteristics as the Ubermesh. But if there were individuals who were six feet six and taller, they attained to the highest creed of Ubermesh, the Hunenmesh. And he considered these men to be the closest relatives of the original Germanic warrior tribes. And being 6'6 entitled a Nazi soldier, a special medal of honor, and an instant promotion to the status of SS officer. The Hunenmesh, the great man, as they continued to work on the outside, not recognizing the depravity all around them. What's your standard by which you measure yourself? Isn't our world in the process of creating the Ubermensch in the United States of America? You must be beautiful and healthy and wealthy and strong. So what's your Ubermensch? Are you obsessed with your looks? I have to look a certain way if I want to be the overwoman or the older man. Maybe you're obsessed with your social standing. Once I attain to this height in the community, then I will be regarded. Then I will meet the standard. And so we dress up ourselves with our money and our clothes and our comments, all the while unwilling to look at the depravity in our hearts and how we love and hate our brother and sister. See, we are, have one thing in common with all of these ancestors. We're sinners. And we don't make the mark. And until you learn to accept your past, you cannot change your future. But I said that you can change where you came from, and this will change where you're going. So this brings me to my second point, that we must choose God's plan. You know, Jesus is in this list too, isn't he? He's the last one, the descendant of prostitutes and killers and adulterers. Jesus is in this list, and there is also hope in this list. Because throughout this list and the failures of humanity, we see God's promises that he will not neglect his people. Even when he's speaking with Adam and Eve after they've sinned, there will come one from you who will destroy this evil one who has done this to you. Remember Noah. God found wickedness in all of the earth. But Noah found favor with God. Not because of his righteousness. Read the story of Noah. He's not the best guy in the world either. But God, for some reason, found favor with him and saved him. And said, I will recreate the world through you and I will never destroy every one of you. How about Abraham? I will bless you and I will make your descendants more than the stars in the sky. And David, which we just read a little while ago, I will build you a house. Why would God splice himself into such a fallen line of people? It must be that God had a bigger plan for humanity. Romans 8.29 says this, 
For those he foreknew, which really means forelove from the beginning of time, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. See, the reason we were made in God's image was God's ultimate plan for us was to be God's children. A plan that we cannot thwart by our evil decisions. But in order to make such a quantum leap from the sins of a fallen humanity to the holiness of a restored and resurrected person, you have to move to a new line. You can't salvage the old line. And so this passage is showing us that there is a Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who was fully human, by the way, fully man and fully woman. God used DNA somewhere from the man, the X chromosome, to bring in there to create the Y chromosome to create this man. And the baptism when God comes down and He says, You are my Son, who I'm pleased with. What's He saying there? He's saying, He's speaking to Him as human. You are my Son. Today I have adopted you as the Son of Man. Now go and live. He is the second Adam. Hebrews puts it this way, that during the day of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. A new line, a new genealogy, a new rescue plan. Now you know this genealogy ends with Jesus. And so we must ask the question, who are we? We are his spiritual offspring. Dead because of our bodies, but alive because of his spirit. The scriptures in Galatians 3.27 says this, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one, in Jesus Christ. Christ in moving us to himself has removed the curse of humanity. He's transforming us from the inside out and giving us a new destiny, a new inheritance, a new intimacy with God, a new power to live the righteous life that God requires of us. We can change where we came from and this will change where we're going. My son's death, I don't know of a more stark example of the clash of darkness and light, if you will. The person that took my son's life could have not illustrated in a better way the wickedness of the world and the fallenness of humanity, a supposed random act of violence just for the sheer thrill of it. My son was a sinner. But he had chosen to change his past. He had a new ancestor, Jesus Christ. And in his life, God who was transforming him, who had transformed his destiny, was transforming him from the inside out. So that he was manifesting the righteousness of a new line of Jesus Christ. And darkness met light. And yet light seems to have overcome Nobody seems to remember the darkness. 
But I walk around all the time and people tell me all about the light. See, if my son is of the old line, he takes his place on the fallen, broken heap of humanity, another cast off. But because he has changed his past, it changes his future. Christ did not come to redeem humanity, he came to resurrect it. And so you have a choice before you today. Choose your line, the first Adam or the second. People say we don't have free will. It's ridiculous. Choose who you want. That's free will. Choose who you want. Choose the line. It's up to you. It's your choice. God is the one who has accomplished salvation. Choose who you want to follow. If you choose the second Adam, the line you're already in, which doesn't really take a choice, you continue along the same trajectory with the same problems and defects leading to the same junk heap at the end. But when you receive a new past, you receive a new identity, and you receive a new present, and you receive a new future. And so, acknowledge your past but identify with a new line. Surrender yourself to your forebear, Jesus Christ, and you will be irrevocably changed as his spiritual offspring. For Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the old line, and the new has come. In Christ, we are irrevocably changed and are being transformed into His likeness day by day, ultimately manifesting who we are at the resurrection of all things. If you are a Christian, if you have changed your line, it changes everything. And so this brings me to my final point. We must walk on God's path. If we have a new identity, the world no longer is our home in the sense of we belong with the humanity that is here. We are abnormally born, so to speak. And though the world tries to squeeze us into its mold, the scriptures say to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you can discern what the will of God is. See, he's saying that you must no longer act like you were before. That's the true definition of hypocrisy, isn't it? To be one thing and yet to act a different way. Christ is saying, the scriptures are saying, if you are in Christ, your life is this manifested. Prove who you are by how you live. See, although my identity has changed, I still have a daily choice. Which line will I walk by? Will I be a hypocrite and walk by the old line, even though I don't belong to it? Will I be seduced by the world or will I live in my true identity? We have a new way to live and it can't be the same. How often do you think about your identity? As the world seeks to squeeze you into its mold, this is who you are. You're a loser. You're a failure. You can't change. You're just like everybody before you. Come and do what we do. 
You ever heard of the crab pot syndrome? It's interesting, I've seen it played out. If you get a bunch of crabs and you put them in a bushel, in a, in a basket, you don't even have to put a lid in it. Because when one tries to climb out, everyone else pulls him down. Because he's one of them, they don't want him to get out. They only work together. But you see, we don't belong in that pot anymore. The world has no hold on us. Do you know your identity? Prove who you are by who you put your faith and trust in. In Christ you are not ruled by your past. You're not ruled by your limits. You're ruled by Him. So prove who you are by your faith. Prove who you are by how you live. Romans puts it this way, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and death no longer has dominion over Him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from the dead. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's Romans 6, 6, by the way. Prove who you are by how you live. You know, the sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than all the bars in America. I prayed a prayer, whatever it was. But my life reflects no difference. There's no transformation. There's no holiness. Judge a tree by its fruit. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Now, I don't know where you started out, but do you see more fruit coming from your life? Are you beginning to manifest your Creator? Don't rely on some sort of prayer you prayed 12 years ago. Rely on this question. Is Jesus Christ your Lord now? And will I surrender myself to Him now? Prove who you are by how you live. And also prove who you are by how you love. Did not Christ demonstrate His own love for us? That while all of His forebears were sinners... Christ came into a fallen humanity and died for us. There is no greater love than he who gives up his life for his friends. And there is no greater friend than he who calls his enemies friends. Christ loved us. And his love is in us through his Holy Spirit. Prove who you are by how you love. As Christ has demonstrated this sacrificial love in his life, so we must too by the Holy Spirit. It starts here with the new family of God. If anyone says he knows God yet hates his brother, how can the love of God be in him? Have you reached across the aisle to someone who's in need or in pain? Has your love for someone at Redeemer had some sort of sacrifice to it, some sort of giving of your heart? Have you learned to love the people out there, the enemies of Christ, the evil ones, the Judas and the Davids and the Abrahams and all of these folks. If you change where you come from, this will change where you are going. A new past will create a new present and a new, and a new uh, future. 
We were made to be sons and daughters of God. And Christ has completed this work. We have a new identity. So count yourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ. Own your past. Don't fear it. Choose God's plan. Identify yourself with His line. And finally, walk on God's path that He has for you. Wherever God has put you. For His life is a resurrection life. And He who gives life to Christ will give life to your mortal bodies. We have no obligation to that old line. Change where you came from. And this will change where you're going. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this genealogy, for we see ourselves in it. Members of the fallen race of humanity, children of a lesser God. But you have given us a new destiny because you've given us a new past. The chance to change our lineage from being sons and daughters of natural man to sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us look unflinchingly into our past. Let us be honest about ourselves. But let us see you for all that you are and what you have done. And let us choose you. And let us walk in your path, manifesting who you are and how we live. You are the overman. And in you, Lord, we are conquerors, more than conquerors through you who loved us. Let us manifest your life and love. Through your grace, through the name of Christ we pray. Amen.